You are about to listen to the Friends of Anchor podcast, which keeps you up to date with the inspirational work of the Friends of Anchor charity and everything that it's doing to support cancer and haematology care in the northeast of Scotland. Hello and welcome to the third episode of the Friends of Anchor podcast. I'm Mike Elder, your podcast host, and in today's episode, I will be interviewing John Greensmith about his experience of living with cancer for more than 30 years. In addition, I will be delving into the charity's archives to highlight some news stories from 1997, while the focus in the Finding the Words slot will be on the meeting with medical staff when a diagnosis is given. As ever though, we will begin by hearing from Erica Banks, communications lead at Friends of Anchor, about news and updates relating to the charity. So welcome back, Erica. Thank you very much for contributing as ever. What have you got for us this month? Well, after a very busy September with loads of events, we're looking at a slightly quieter start into the autumn. The key thing for us is going to be our supporter thank you event, which you'll hear a little bit more about later, and also just wishing our fundraisers good luck. So you'll hear about a couple of those specific events later on too. That sounds great. Thank you very much indeed. Let's start by talking about the thank you event, and I think you can update us on that and give us a few more details. Yeah, the itineraries are they're, they're written, the day is planned. So we're really looking forward to it. We would love to see as many people there as possible. So we've had some RSVPs and if you're on the fence and you'd like to come along, it's just a really nice opportunity to find out about what Friends Ranker is up to and how the pound that you give or the volunteer hours that you give support patients right here in the Northeast. So the venue is the Institute of Medical Sciences on the Forester Hill campus, which is a great space for you to just come in, grab a cup of coffee, grab a fancy piece, have a little... Sounds what good. It does. Yeah, one over already. Absolutely. <laughs> so um, we'll have stalls set up with various different things. So people will be able to speak to clinicians who are working with some of the state-of-the-art equipment that we have funded. And they're using that in the hospital every day in surgery or in surgery prep. People will have a chance to speak to researchers who are working on friends Anchor funded research into cancer and into haematology diseases. So that will actually be laboratory tours. So our guests will have a chance to head off into the labs, see what's happening in the petri dishes and in the test tubes and all this stuff. Sounds great. It does, yeah. Do you know, and last time we did one of these events, a long time ago, all the lab tours were totally, you know, at full capacity. So we'd love to see that again this time around and, and have a lot of people finding out about the good work that's going on in the labs. And so can people just front up for that or do they need to let you know beforehand? Yeah, ideally, it would be great if people could let us know so we could get those booked in. So if you'd like to come along, please email info at friendsofanchor.org. Just with your name, just let us know you'd like to be there and we'll give you all the details that you need. Our wellbeing team will also be there as oh, well great. therapists, yeah. So a chance to meet them and see and hear what they get up to on the wards each day. And our therapists will be offering mini massage, mini nail bar, just so that people can see what's on offer to the patients, thanks to the support of our donors. That sounds a great event. Thank you very much indeed for that. And the date again is... It's Friday the 7th of October. Anyone and everyone is welcome. You don't have to have fundraised for Friends of Anchor. You don't have to have donated. We would just love to see you there supporting the cause. And we won't be asking for anything at all on the day. This is just a chance to find out what we're up to. Brilliant. And timings? From 1pm to 4pm. Perfect. Thank you very much indeed. And just having been into the hospital recently, it really looks as if the Anchor Centre is taking shape. Yeah. Any comments or updates that you're able to give us on that? 
Yes, the Anchor Centre is looking fantastic. And I know that for next month's episode, you've got a great interview lined up with Louise Ann Budge. That's right. So heavily involved, such an integral part of the project and has been for seven years, driving it forward and making it happen. So I won't go into too many of the details because I, I just wouldn't do it justice. But Louise is just daily involved and knows this project inside out and what every room is going to look like. We're approaching that one year to open date countdown and it'll be fantastic to finally be at that place Yeah, with one year to go. That's very exciting. And as you say, we're very much looking forward to hearing from Louise next time on the podcast. And looking ahead throughout October, any particular things coming up that you want to draw attention to? Yeah, once again, we've got people championing the cause. So we've got the the Dance Proms is an event that is organised every year in Aberdeen. And it is just this spectacular extravaganza of all different kinds of dance involving all different dance schools from the local area. For several years, Friends of Anchor has been lucky to be the chosen charity. So there will be donations on the night if you wish to make them in support of Friends of Anchor. That's a fantastic event. And where is that taking place? That's at the Beach Ballroom. Brilliant. On October 5th and 6th. And we've got people fundraising for us too. So good luck to Rachel Murison, who is a long-standing fundraiser of ours who we just adore. And she is organising a Ladies' Day on October 8th. Diane Robertson has got bingo and fashion fundraiser on October 29th. And good luck and thank you very much to anyone who's taking on anything for Friends of Anchor. Terrific. Thank you very much indeed for that update, Erica. And we'll look forward to hearing more next month. Yeah, really looking forward to hearing from next month's guests too. And my interviewee for this episode is John Greensmith, who recently took part in Brave, which is a fashion show featuring men from the local area who have had to deal with a cancer or haematology diagnosis. I began our conversation by asking John to introduce himself. I am a young 64-year-old, probably noticed from my accent that I'm not Scottish, I was born in Ireland, but I've lived in Aboyne for over 30 years, and work brought me to the northeast of Scotland as I started off life here as a commercial diver. And then following my diagnosis, I then worked in the office, got a proper job, as my dad would have said, (laughs) and then stopped working 2014 when my health deteriorated. And can you tell us just a little bit about your diagnosis? I was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, CLL for short. It's a cancer of the blood and lymph system, and it is a cancer of which there is no cure, but it is treatable. When I say there's no cure, that was certainly the message I got originally, but given the research and the advances in medical science, there's potential for a cure around the corner. So that's always hopeful. It is, and I very much hope that will happen. And in terms of your diagnosis, when did that happen? That happened in 1990. So as I celebrated my 64th birthday in March of this year, I have the unenviable statistic of having now lived with cancer longer than I've lived without it. And I hope to increase that particular statistic. <laughs> and, and we hope so as well, very much indeed. And, and so you have lived with cancer for a long time. What, what has that been like? I don't use the term that a lot of people use when they talk about cancer as being a journey. I use the roller coaster analogy because mm. I think it suits 
what I've experienced, and more importantly, what my family have experienced. When I was originally diagnosed, there was just myself and my wife, Vera. We didn't have children, so one of the the very first questions I asked upon uh, learning of my diagnosis was what impact it would have on us being able to have a family. So one worry was, would we be able to have a family? Mm -hmm. And the second one was, was my condition hereditary? Mm. And we got two positive responses to those questions. But at the same time, knowing the potential treatments I was going to have to face, it was a case of, well, if you're going to have a family, it would be advisable to do it sooner rather than later. So thankfully, we then created two children, boy and a girl. Brilliant. Happy families. And they're called? Owen uh, came first and then Orla. Lovely. And that must have been quite something for, for your wife as, as well to, to go through all of that. Yes. Purely by virtue of the fact that she was a nurse, she's now retired, it meant that she had a, a greater understanding mm-hmm. and she had been an oncology nurse. So she had a greater understanding of all of this than I certainly had at the start, which is a good thing from the point of view of being able to absorb the, the medical jargon. But knowing the prognosis and understanding the potential downside of that added to her worry, whereas I probably didn't absorb that at the start, and therefore it didn't worry me as much. Sure. A classic case of, you know, not being aware of things means that you don't worry about them. Indeed. And so here you are now talking about Friends of Anchor. Can you tell us just a bit about what your experience of Friends of Anchor has been and in what ways the charity has provided support and what you found most helpful in that regard? I suppose, again, because I was diagnosed so early, my diagnosis predates Friends of Anchor. Mm. And uh, so therefore, I was up in what is now Ward 307, Ward 16, as it was back then, and Ward 14, our haematology outpatients. And, you know, in the later 90s, I began to notice when I was undergoing treatment, the stickers appearing on the giving sets. And then I saw fans, which were very, very welcome, Mm. especially on the warm days. And with all the machinery, and it's an old building, ARI, so therefore it used to get very, very hot. So the fans were brilliant. But I I noticed the stickers, Mm -hmm. and it sparked an interest as to who were friends of Anchor. In fact, I had to try and figure out what ANCHOR was, but now I understand the acronym, and it's, it's a brilliant acronym. Sure. And just for benefit of listeners who might not know, can you explain that to us briefly? Aberdeen and North Centre for Hematology, Oncology and Radiotherapy. And uh, in terms of your own personal contact thereafter, were there any particular things that, that you benefited from, would you say? Because I was in and out of the wards, I probably was on the sideline of aspects of what the Friends of Anchor would provide. I did notice the wig services for the ladies, (laughs) and whilst it never bothered me, I could just see the benefit it brought, and it was heartening to see that. I saw the podiatry activities. I remember the lunches were provided, you know, NHS lunches, which were what I used to call the prairie sandwiches, two slices of bread with wide open spaces in between them. (laughs) And then of late, they certainly improved with the help of Anchor. 
and the little bits of fruit. But it's the little things absolutely that have a potential to have a huge benefit. Yeah, and it's it's also the little things when there isn't much else around. Mm-hmm. You could be sat there in one of those chairs that looks very comfortable when you sit on it, but when you've been there for five, six, seven hours, they're not that comfortable. So things like creature comforts like that have a potential to, to have a huge positive impact on you. I would absolutely agree. It was the Danish pastries provided by Friends of Anchor that did it for me. And I did a mindfulness course through Friends of Anchor, and that was great. It's good, it works, and it helped me at the time. And men and cancer can be an interesting equation. From your experience now over so many years, what are some of the things that might be helpful to consider for men who are faced with a cancer diagnosis or who end up undergoing cancer treatment? Men, by and large, keep things to themselves. They're supposed to do the stiff upper lip. And you you, you hear the term, which is now really frowned upon, you know, come on, man up. And it can be a lonely place if you're expected to man up. So my takeaway is that the likes of Brave gave us an opportunity to talk amongst ourselves. We understood where we were coming from by virtue of the shared experience. And as I said at the few words, at the end of each show, we'd been there, we'd done that. And by virtue of the fact that we had the black Brave Model t-shirt done, we actually had got the t-shirt. But as our Brave rehearsals were happening and we were getting to know each other, we started a WhatsApp group and we started to share things Some of the guys would be going in for tests and maybe the results weren't what they had hoped. And the support and empathy that came out of that was unexpected and inspiring. And it was gratifying to see that guys could actually talk to each other in a way that I would never have anticipated. Brilliant. And I imagine that spills over into other areas as well. You've been talking about men talking to men. We're not always good at letting other people, our family, into the situation. Have you found that's been your experience as well? Well, I suppose I've changed over the 32 years that I've had to live with cancer. At the start, I would be quite roughy-tuffy about it and, come on, let's get this treatment done and get on with the next part of life and would always want to seem as normal as possible. I remember being on a six-month chemo course, like monthly cycles, and endeavouring to work through all of that. I remember one time going to a meeting after having maybe cycle three or something like that of a chemo and arriving five or ten minutes late for the meeting and the silence that greeted me was unexpected and it was only afterwards that one of the guys said, you look like Casper the friendly ghost <laughs> coming in here. And you know, here was me trying to do the best I could to be normal when it was pretty obvious I wasn't normal. It's not a generalism that it's a bloke thing, but it's typical of the way I reacted to it. Now, others might have said, right, I've gone six months of chemo. I'm, I'm going to have to have six months off. Yeah. And we all have different ways of coping. And just because I coped in my way doesn't mean it's the right way, or it doesn't mean it's the wrong way, or it doesn't mean that everybody has to do it like that. 
We all have our coping mechanisms and they actually change over time and they change with the treatment that you're getting. But the impact on your family is another aspect, which I didn't realize at times. And you have a public face. And by that, I mean, when you're out with your family environment, you're in a work environment or you're with your, your mates, that's one side of you. And then you have what happens at home inside the house where you might be an early and at this stage in life, I'm qualified to say grumpy old man, but it's your family that see that side of it. And it's unfair that you should keep your best face for the public and your worst for your family. It probably should be the other way around. But we think we're tough-skinned when it comes to that, and we should be the best face forward outside. And so therefore, the impact of a cancer diagnosis of any description on someone's family is significant, and at times not fully recognized or understood. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing those thoughts. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? John? Yes, I think actually there are two things I would like to cover. And one of them is research. And it's great to see, and I didn't realize it until I really started to look into what Friends of Anchor do, the fact that they fund research. Or should I say we fund research? Quite simply, I had a prognosis in 2014 after a severe bout of autoimmune hemolytic anemia. I was effectively beginning to look at, right, we're we're approaching the end game here. If it wasn't for medical research, I wouldn't have got a specific drug, which without any shadow of a doubt was a lifesaver. And I wouldn't be here today talking to you, Mike, without having had the benefit of that drug, which I was on for five and a half years. When I was diagnosed, that drug was the stuff of dreams. It was through medical research and trials that brought that to be and made it available to me. So therefore, I'm a huge supporter of research and trials. And you don't actually have to do anything to be in a trial. You can just allow your data to be shared. And the people who are much more clever than I am at analyzing this type of stuff can actually put your data into dead hard mathematical sums and come up with trends to show that this treatment is more beneficial or less beneficial. So research and trials are key. So that's one point I'd like to make. And the second point I'd like to make is that even though I've been a patient, for the last 32 years, I'm a person first. Yeah. I'm a patient second. And the team up at ARI always treat you as a person. That's really encouraging. It's gratifying. Yes, they're into the science behind your condition, but they always treat you as a person rather than a patient. And That's key to maintaining your dignity and being able to lead as normal a life as is possible. 
John, thank you so much for those final thoughts and for coming in today and for your time. I found that absolutely inspiring and I'm sure our listeners will have done as well. And we wish you all the very best for the future. Thanks, Mike. and Thanks for the opportunity. Because John has had such wide experience and had so much to say, we barely touched upon his experience of Brave. So we will release an extended version of his interview as a bonus episode in due course, so that you can hear his reflections on his involvement in that successful and very moving event. In the meantime, the next item is our From the Archives feature, which has been prompted by the fact that Friends of Anchor is currently celebrating its 25th year. In this episode, we pay our final visit to 1997 and cover a range of news stories from its very busy inaugural year. Once again, I'm very grateful to be able to draw on the extensive local journalism of the Press and Journal. And once again, the items featured demonstrate the breadth of support across the community for Friends of Anchor while also capturing the distinctively northeast quality of many of the contributions that were made. First off, we have Muriel Thompson, the professional at Putleffen Golf Club, who raised £2,400 by completing a marathon 120 holes in 10 hours. 100 holes had been the original target, but Muriel was still feeling good when she reached that milestone, so she carried on for another round and a bit. Next up was a group of friends who put Tully Nestle on the map while raising £3,158. Alan and Jackie Dunbar, Sylvia and Scott Dundas, and Stephen Marshall achieved that total by holding a barbecue, dance and raffle at Tully Nestle Hall. Alan and Jackie's 13-year-old son Craig helped with the event, while three other youngsters, this time from the Kinkorf area of Aberdeen, raised £100 in memory of their aunt, Isabel Mess, who had died from cancer the previous year. Sisters Leanne and Kimberly Keldy who were 13 and 10, held a street sale, helped by their friend Sarah O'Neill, and also raffled a doll among their neighbours. It was also time, in the words of the P&J reporter, to soak up the fun at the Anchor Appeal Fun Day at the hospital. Staff at the hospital had the chance to, and you will realise that I'm quoting here, sock it to their bosses, who put themselves at the mercy of wet, sponge-throwing nurses, doctors and auxiliaries by agreeing to be strapped into stocks for one of the activities taking place on that occasion. A very touching fundraising tribute came in the form of the £6,251.89 that was handed over by Gary Taylor, who organised a cycle race in June 1997 in honour of his brother Trevor, who had died from cancer the previous month. Gary and 23 other cyclists raised their total through the generous support of family and friends who sponsored them to complete the 22-mile route from Afford to Aberdeen. Of course, no collection of news clippings would be complete without some journalistic puns. And that box is well and truly ticked by our final article, which tells the story of a donation from 91-year-old Effie Watson. So, we bid farewell to 1997 through the words of the P&J. On the Ball pensioner, Effie Watson, is set to kick off a charity auction for cancer patients. The 91-year-old Dons fan scooped in a raffle an Aberdeen FC football, signed by the Pitodri squad, 
Now, Miss Watson's goal is to find the collector's item a better home and raise money for the anchor unit at the same time. We now move on to the Finding the Words slot, and in this instalment, Alison, my wife and I, will be talking about the conversations that we had with medical staff when we were being given new information by them, for example regarding my diagnosis. At the same time as our brains were furiously trying to process what we were being told and what that was going to mean for us. Alison, perhaps you'd like to start us off on this topic, as I know that it is of particular interest to you. Thanks, Mike. Yes, having been a health professional when I worked as an occupational therapist in the children's hospital, I was used to having conversations with patients and parents about their treatment plans. As you can imagine, people could react in all kinds of different ways, and it was always a challenge to know what to say to children in particular and how to express it. So it was fascinating, as well as being pretty emotional of course, to suddenly be on the other side of that kind of conversation when we had a meeting with a consultant about your diagnosis and the plans for your treatment. I have to say that whole meeting is pretty much a blur for me as I think back about it, so we're very much in your hands when talking about it. That's fine, I remember it very clearly. From the outset, the consultant was very understanding and reassuring, and that really helped. It was also good that he started with the headline news and explained the situation simply and clearly to you by saying, you have a grade 4 blood cancer and something needs to be done about it and we have a treatment plan, which I'm going to explain to you. And I think that is just about all of the detail that I can actually recall from that meeting, apart from the fact that my treatment was called MaxiChop and was also referred to as the Nordic Regimen, having been developed through a collaboration of Scandinavian scientists, doctors and researchers. What fascinates me is that you remember that kind of incidental information and yet you didn't take in more important points about your treatment you were being told in that meeting. I think that my head was all over the place, to be honest especially as we were meeting on Thursday and he said that the treatment would begin on Monday. And that's why I was so grateful to you for coming with me and for asking such helpful questions. Well, I knew that the conversation would include the key points that we needed to understand about our situation, but I also thought it might not cover everything that we wanted to know. So I wrote down a checklist of the information that we had agreed that we wanted to find out and then asked questions if a particular item wasn't mentioned. And that was just so helpful, along with the notes that you took. Yes, it might seem odd to go into a meeting like that with a notebook and pen, but if you don't write down what is said at the time, you can easily forget it and be riddled with uncertainty about exactly what was said. I certainly found it very helpful that you had notes that we could look back on. I also found it very useful that the consultant provided a couple of booklets from Lymphoma Action. As you know, I like to research topics and find out as much as I can about them, so having good, reliable reference material was very important for me. What else should we mention in connection with this important meeting that I can barely recall? Yes, for me, having information written down made questions easier at the time and in subsequent meetings. I found it helpful to look back on the information and it definitely helped keep my thoughts in check and not imagine things that weren't said. There's always a possibility of information overload, but for me, having the information helped me understand and prepare for what lay ahead. Alison, thank you so much for guiding us through today's conversation. It was a difficult experience at the time, and there's still a rawness when we talk about it even now, so I'm really grateful to you for sharing those thoughts. As you know, we're very different when it comes to any kind of public speaking, and it's always quite a thought for me to come and speak into a microphone in this way. However, I feel strongly that it's quite important for a spouse, a partner, another family member, or friend to support someone attending a meeting about a diagnosis and or treatment. So I hope that our experience will be of some interest and help to others. And it may be that you would like to get in touch with your own comments or feedback. 
in which case we will be delighted to hear from you via FOA podcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk. Please join us next time when we'll be talking about our experience of sharing the news of Mike's diagnosis with our family. Just now, though, we conclude, of course, with the and finally slot. In previous episodes, I mentioned a couple of historical medical treatments in the form of the fire drill and bloodletting. On this occasion, I want to draw attention to a modern medical treatment that has an interesting connection with Aberdeen. A key part of my diagnosis process was an MRI scan, which, as I recall, lasted long enough for me to have a little doze while it was happening. What I didn't realise at the time was that the first full-body MRI scanner in the world was invented by Aberdeen University scientists in 1980. To demonstrate its safety, researchers had to become their own guinea pigs and scanned each other dozens of times between April and August 1980 using the Mark I MRI. Then, on the 28th of August 1980, they successfully carried out the world's first full-body scan on a man from Fraserburgh who was suffering from terminal cancer and had bravely agreed to the procedure. The images produced not only clearly showed his cancer, they also revealed a secondary tumour in his spine which had not been identified previously. That breakthrough event changed medical treatment throughout the world and has made a huge contribution to the development of cancer analysis and diagnosis. By now, you will know that I'm always intrigued by quirky elements within a story or situation. So here are two items that caught my fancy from this piece of medical history. The first point of interest arises from the fact that the scientists in Aberdeen were working on a shoestring budget of £30,000, which had to include staff costs. As a result, they were very resourceful in their use of materials when constructing the scanner. So, the world's first full-body magnetic resonance imaging prototype which is on permanent display in the Sutty Art Space in Aberdeen Royal Infirmary, included some copper pipe from a local plumber and a tube that had been repurposed from its original use within a children's play park. The second detail that fascinated me was the name given to the technological breakthrough that the Aberdeen team of scientists, including Dr Bill Edelstein and Professors John Mallard and Jim Hutchison, had worked so hard to achieve. The game-changing moment came when the quality of the images produced by MRI scans was totally transformed by using what became known, rather wonderfully, as spin-warp imaging, a term that, surprisingly, appears not to have started off life in the script for a Star Trek episode. I, for one, am very grateful for the amazing work of the Aberdeen scientists who created the full-body MRI scanner and didn't rest until they had developed the revolutionary spin-warp imaging that turned it into the life-changing piece of medical equipment that it has become. So thank you very much indeed for joining us for this episode of the Friends of Anchor podcast. Please have a look at the show notes for relevant information and links. And please get in touch with your thoughts, feedback, questions and suggestions via email at foapodcast at freerangepodcasting.co.uk. I hope that you will join me again next time when, as mentioned by Erica earlier in this episode, 
My guest will be Louise Budge, the Service and Commissioning Project Manager for the new Anchor Centre. In the meantime, to all the staff at ARI, who, as John Greensmith said, do such a brilliant job of treating us as people first and patients second, carry on doing what you are doing. It makes all the difference. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you and your podcast where you want to go. 